Welcome, dear listeners, to another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's darker side. In today's case, we spill all the scintillating details on the sordid history of the Mississauga stretch of Lakeshore Road. All along the highway, seedy roadhouses sprung up to meet the needs of weary travelers. Behind the respectable facade of dining and dancing, hit a thriving black market of illicit booze and gambling. Gangsters were drawn to the rowdy roadhouses like bees to honey, and Clarkson's Chicory Inn was the destination du jour for the top tier of Toronto's gangland malefactor. Headlining were Toronto gangland heavyweights Big Bill Cook in one corner and the notorious Campbell brothers in the other. When these title champion chiselers went head to head, sparks and bullets flew. From the case files of Heritage Mississauga, this is Mississauga Confidential. Episode 9, West End Blues, Clarkson's Den of Crime. Thursday, August 28, 1930, City of Brampton. Two roadhouses, both alike in dignity. The Pinecroft Inn in Lakeview and the Chicory Inn in Clarkson. Both were nestled along the Lakeshore Highway in Toronto Township. Both were popular destinations for dining and dancing. Both had their proprietors standing in Brampton Police Court on charges of illegally trafficking tobacco and serving soft drinks. Melville Campbell stood for the Pinecroft Inn, and Joe Bush stood for the Chicory Inn. They were strange bedfellows in their unity against a common foe. Bush and Campbell's lawyer, Ontario MPP Eddie J. Murphy, excoriated the arresting officer for the methods of search and seizure without a warrant. The charges were trumped up, but the hassle of bringing Campbell and Bush up on charges was a goal unto itself. It was only a month removed from the murder of Philip J. Rumbold, and Ontario Attorney General William H. Price was on a righteous, well-publicized mission to quash the Lakeshore Roadhouses. For businesses that operated in the twilight between legality and illegality, the goal was to make it hard for them to do business. To the papers, Price declared of the Roadhouse racket, quote, We're going to stamp it out, end quote. The late 1920s saw the rough-and-tumble roadhouses of Detroit and Windsor migrate north to the Lakeshore Highway. The asphalt stretch from Toronto to Hamilton was well-traveled and close enough to the U.S. to bring in pleasure-seekers from south of the border. It was a wild party set to the rumble of combustion engines, the clicking of roulette wheels, and the syncopated rhythms of jazz. Lakeview had the Pinecroft Inn. Port Credit had the Grey Wolf Inn, but the preeminent pleasure palace in Peel County was Clarkson's Chicory Inn at the corner of South Down Road in the Lakeshore Highway. The half-chicken and spaghetti dinner special pulled the punters in the door, but the booze and gambling kept them there. Liquor and dice weren't the only ingredients essential to keep the party going. Any successful roadhouse had a pipeline to a bevy of bright young things, willing to entertain unaccompanied men. If a stag party rolled up to the house, 
a manager would jump on the telephone, black book in hand, and ring up shop girls, secretaries, and stenographers all over the city to see who was game for an evening's entertainment. The moonlighting maidens were ferried by private car to the roadhouse, where they chatted, danced, ordered drinks, and drove the tab up, up, up. The occasional police raid was a sufferable nuisance, part of standard operating procedures in the roadhouse racket. Kickbacks and hush money kept the lid on the simmering pot that held booze, money, and sex. The lid blew off in July 1930 with the killing of Philip J. Rumbold. The Tonawanda businessman's murder roused public sentiment against the roadhouses. Where a roadhouse might have openly flaunted its disregard of liquor control laws before the Rumbold murder, in a post-Rumbold world, the long gaze of the law never blinked and never wavered. With orders from up on high, cops camped out on the roadhouse's doorsteps, taking names of customers and tagging cars in the parking lot. They were given the okay to ditch their uniforms for plain clothes and placed behind the wheel of high-octane hot rods. These so-called flying squads zoomed up and down the highways from Oshawa to Hamilton, raiding roadhouses, stopping cars, and making arrests. They were particularly piqued by American-plated jalopies, putting a distinct damper on the tourist trade. It got to be that an honest citizen with a fancy for a bit of whoopee couldn't get ginned up with a couple of good-time gals without the fuzz kicking up a fuss. The constant police scrutiny threw a bucket of cold water on the party, and the clientele stayed home. The police pressure put the squeeze on the nightly returns in the once lucrative roadhouse racket, Seats sat unoccupied, dance floors were deserted, and bottom lines hit rock bottom. In response, the business became even more cutthroat. Subterfuge, espionage, and dirty tricks were deployed to steer customers from one roadhouse down the road to another. One house might send a plant to a competitor's establishment. The saboteur would order some booze to the table, then skedaddle, just as a well-timed tip-off brought in a police raid. The hope would be a fine, arrest, or better still, a license revocation. When a Toronto businessman keeled over from heart failure in the lobby of the Chicory Inn, their enterprising competitors began dropping hints that he'd been poisoned by the house's bad booze. It was an approach to capitalism that was at once ruthless and petty. In other words, it was capitalism. Enter Joe Bush, the owner of the Chicory Inn, a.k.a. Carmen Montoni, a.k.a. Joseph Montoni, a.k.a. Joseph Bailey, a.k.a. Carmen Bush. Bold and brash with a big mouth to boot, Bush wasn't timid about airing the dirty laundry of the roadhouse rackets in the papers at any given opportunity. He painted his establishment as the one oasis of virtue along a highway hellscape. The sheen of respectability was strictly superficial, and, in an ironic twist, the Chicory Inn was home to more than its fair share of dirty deeds. Shortly after Campbell and Bush's date in police court, the Pinecroft Inn lost its restaurant license, effectively shutting it down. The inn wasn't allowed to reopen until Melville Campbell sold his stake in the Pinecroft and left the roadhouse business for good. Whether or not Joe Bush clandestinely connived to have Campbell ousted from the Pinecroft Inn is strictly speculative. Nevertheless, it was a boon for Bush and the Chicory Inn, 
and Melville Campbell was left with heavy axe to grind. And grind it he did. In December 1930, Joe Bush received a long-distance call at the Chicory Inn from a shakedown artist who demanded $1,000 for their silence vis-a-vis the inn's very popular but very illegal roulette wheel. Bush refused, shut down the roulette table, and called the cops. The investigation found the call originated from a Young Street hotel. The call had been made by an Italian migrant worker from Montreal who'd been paid to don the character of Uno Mafioso Americano. Outside the hotel sat the man's puppet masters, Melville Campbell, and Melville's brother and occasional partner in crime, Oscar Campbell. The police investigation put a damper on the extortion plot, and the Campbell's lead player in their melodrama hightailed it back to Montreal. Days later, as Joe Bush left the inn by the rear entrance, the sound of gunfire crackled in the air, and bullets whizzed by, narrowly missing him. The Campbell brothers' blunderbuss style of retribution caught up other victims at the Chicory Inn. William Big Bill Cook was Bush's right-hand man at the Chicory Inn. Big Bill worked the door, and any reveler who wanted to access the house's pleasures had to first go through the bolted door, and then go through Big Bill behind it. Any patron who caused trouble inside the Chicory Inn got the boot from Big Bill. It was only natural that Big Bill, too, became a target of the Campbell's campaign of vengeance. On the night of April 4, 1931, Big Bill was standing outside a Toronto restaurant at the corner of Dundas and Jarvis. Oscar Campbell snuck up on the big man from behind and sapped him with a hammer. Big Bill went down and needed seven stitches to close the wound on his head. When questioned by police, Big Bill stuck to the underworld's code of silence and didn't squeal. He knew very well who'd slugged him, and he would settle the score himself. In 1931, the Chicory Inn was rechristened the Plaza Lodge, a name that spoke to Joe Bush's grandiose aspirations for his establishment, and, perhaps, to distance it from the Chicory Inn's checkered past. No signage swap, however, could keep trouble away from the door. In the early hours of Sunday, April 20th, 1931, trouble came knocking. At an apartment on Monroe Street in Toronto, a party gathered at the home of Harry Freeze to celebrate the 23rd birthday of Freeze's wife. Guests and attendants included Richard Ashcroft, Mrs. Freeze's brother, a man named Gerald Brown, Melville Campbell, former proprietor of the Pinecroft Inn, Oscar Campbell, Melville's hammer-wielding brother, and the boxer, Albert Frenchy Belanger. To say, however, that Belanger was merely a boxer is an understatement. The Cabbage Town native was a prodigious pugilist of the highest order, whose 12-round decision against England's Ernie Jarvis earned him the title of World Flyweight Champion in 1927. By 1931, however, Belanger's fighting career was flagging, and he'd fallen in with a rough-and-tumble crowd. At 11 p.m., the party-goers had polished off two kegs of beer and were flying high. 
The party left Freeze's apartment and moved westward by car. They arrived at the Plaza Lodge around midnight. They were tight and spoiling for a fight. There's no use going there for beer, Gerald Brown told Oscar Campbell as the car eased into the Plaza Lodge parking lot. There'll be trouble. I ain't scared of Big Bill, Campbell retorted, and to hell with him. I'll kill him. Oscar and Frenchie exited the car, ambled up to the door, and rang the bell. Big Bill answered. He immediately recognized Oscar Campbell and knew that he wasn't there for half a chicken and some spaghetti. Frenchie kindly requested that their party gain admission to the establishment. Big Bill politely declined. The men calmly and rationally debated the point for five minutes until Oscar Campbell pulled out a screwdriver and rammed it through the door's window. Big Bill drew his thirty-eight and fired through the crack in the door. The bullet hit Oscar's abdomen and lodged in his thigh. He stumbled back to the car, and his friends pulled him in. They pointed the car to St. Joseph's Hospital and floored it. When they hit Port Credit, a flying squad car swooped in and pulled it over. The cops escorted the car and its bloody cargo to St. Joe's, where Oscar was treated for his gunshot wound. It was only a flesh wound, and he lived. All five men in the party were arrested and held for questioning. Back at the Plaza Lodge, police, who were already prepped to land at the lodge for their nightly raid, arrived within minutes of the shooting. Big Bill was arrested and claimed self-defense believing the screwdriver had been a gunshot. At his trial, the jury bought the self-defense angle, and Big Bill walked away from the shooting a free man. 1931 wore on. Big Bill Cook parted ways with the Plaza Lodge, but he still kept up an intimate relationship with firearms and violence. At Trotter's Lunch Stand in Toronto, a popular Dundas Street hangout for hoodlums and prostitutes, Big Bill got into an argument with a soon-to-be-notorious hoodlum named Donald Mickey McDonald, a criminal confrere of Oscar Campbell's. On a lark, Mickey had broken a banjo over the head of Big Bill's wife, a working girl known on the streets as the Old Grey Mare. Predictably, Big Bill was none too pleased. He cornered Mickey at Trotter's, a heated exchange of words led to a heated exchange of blows. Then Big Bill reached for the artillery. His thirty-eight revolver went off prematurely in his pocket, and the bullet buried itself in Big Bill's own left leg. The attempted murder bought Big Bill a seven-year stint in Kingston Penitentiary. Exit Big Bill. During the same altercation at Trotter's lunch, Oscar Campbell and Mickey McDonald were both charged with assault after Mickey ripped a telephone off the wall and brought it down onto the head of the restaurant's manager. Mickey picked up the added charge of perjury when he tried to get back onto Big Bill's good side by falsely testifying that he didn't see Cook shoot himself in the leg. All it got him was two years in the clink. But we'll spend more quality time with Mickey McDonald, a criminal whose escapades warrant their own exclusive episode in this series of crime. Stay tuned, listeners.
More on Mickey at a later date. Melville Campbell, Oscar's brother, kept himself busy too. In November 1931, he held up the accountant of the Bredin Bread Company in the street and made off with nearly $2,400 in payroll. He was quickly arrested, and the robbery conviction bought Melville an extended holiday in Kingston Penitentiary. The Campbell brothers continued their criminal ways well into the decade, graduating from small-time hoods to full-fledged gangsters. At a time when ominous dispatches from Europe were muscling domestic news off the front page, their activities were still able to grab headlines. In July 1936, a newly paroled Melville Campbell put together a band of thieves that included Noel Charon, Adrian Dutch Vanderjot, and George Maxwell. The gang broke into the Wyerton Beer Warehouse, carried the company safe out into the street, and cracked it with a hammer. As police descended on the fracas, the thieves hopped in their getaway car and sped off with the cops in hot pursuit. A 13-mile car chase over dusty country roads followed, punctuated by the occasional exchange of gunfire. The gang ditched their bullet-ridden car in Dornock, and it was every man for himself as they ran off in separate directions. One by one, however, the thieves were rounded up and deposited in Walkerton Jail. The gang's shenanigans persisted even in the clink. Melville Campbell broke out the old fainting spell routine to lure the jail doctor into his cell. Unfortunately for Melville, the doctor had seen the show in its original run, its revival years later, and then again in Summerstock. The doubtful doc refused to enter the cell alone, and Melville was later heard to glumly lament to Vanderyot, that act did not work. Vanderyot also had some tricks up his sleeve, and up some other places on his person. His box jumper for this disappearing act was a flame-haired mole named Marjorie Constable. On a visit to her confined valentine, Marge passed on a workshop's worth of hacksaw blades onto her bow. Jail guards later found the blades hidden in the soles of his shoes and in the lapels of his coat. The jig was up, and Marge found herself in hot water, too. In spite of their best efforts to escape prison time, Vanderyot was handed a four-year sentence, and Melville Campbell was handed a full acquittal. You heard that right, a full acquittal. Improbable? Try impossible. And yet, Melville had indeed found a way to Houdini himself out of a tough scrape. More than that, his means of escape would give him carte blanche to thieve for years to come and line his pockets at the very same time. What machinations had Melville used to manufacture his acquittal? His name was Provincial Police Constable Alex Wilson. With the assent of his commanding officer, Wilson had proposed a Faustian bargain with Melville Campbell. Wilson would help quash the Wyerton Warehouse robbery charge in exchange for Melville turning stooly. A main line to Melville's untapped stores of underworld lowdown meant wading into the moral morass of letting a felon go free, but it was a path Wilson was willing to take for the greater good.
The two men agreed to the arrangement, and their pact set in motion a series of events that would get them both exactly what they wanted and more than they bargained for. With both Campbell brothers back on the streets, they seemed to be in a sibling rivalry to see who could outpace the other in criminality. Oscar got a leg up on Melville by taking his show on the road, committing crimes out of province and then out of country. In the Montreal suburb of Outremont, Oscar and his accomplice du jour, Sam Woolman, were in the process of robbing a railway warehouse when they were surprised by a patrolman. Oscar turned and ran as Woolman grappled with the police officer. Oscar wheeled around and fired at the copper. The bullets struck Woolman instead, killing him, and he became another in a long line of disposable Campbell accomplices. Oscar turned tail and kept on running, due south. On the night of February 12, 1936, the offices of the Jewel Tea Company in Buffalo, New York, were broken into by two men. While they attempted to crack the safe, a neighbor saw the lights on in the building and called the cops. The Yeggs were arrested and hauled off to answer some meaningful questions down at Genesee Station. They gave their names as Joe Mercer and John Smith, and had Canadian currency in their pockets. It didn't take long for Buffalo detectives to coax their real names out from them. Joe Mercer was a Toronto man named Robert Weatherby, and John Smith was none other than Oscar Campbell. While he awaited trial for the Jewel Tea heist, Oscar jumped bail, chucking away a $10,000 bond, and fled to West Virginia. Unbeknownst to him, it was Oscar's own brother, the Machiavellian Melville, who gave authorities the tip-off to his whereabouts. Constable Wilson's gamble was paying out. Oscar was apprehended in Charleston and hauled back to Buffalo, where he was found guilty of burglary. The fourth-degree felony carried a mandatory sentence of 15 years behind bars. True to form, Oscar had no intention of paying that debt to society. What follows, dear listeners, is a comedy of errors that had many elements of farce. You have bumbling authority figures, a heaping helping of hubris, a topsy-turvy sense of logic, and a joyous outcome, at least for Oscar Campbell. And so we raise the curtain on our comedy of judicial errors. The setting is the county jail at Wendy, New York. Raymond Donald Edwards is a Buffalo burglar facing his own long stretch in prison. Edwards weasels his way into the role of trustee. A trustee is an inmate who performs menial duties around the jail. So confident are his captors in the impermeability of their cage, they entrust Edwards with the number 69 key. It allows him to freely unlock the door that divides the shower room from the kitchen. After all, without the companion number 62 key that unlocks the door from the kitchen to the yard, escape is still impossible. So confident are his captors in the impermeability of their cage, they allow Edwards to freely associate with another trustee, 
a notorious Canadian safecracker named Oscar Campbell. The two master burglars are adept at break-ins and combine their talents to reverse-engineer a breakout. Edwards, a skilled toolmaker, uses kitchen implements to transform the number 69 key into the magical number 62 key, giving the two access to the jail yard. The industrious pair use a scavenged rope and a wooden plank to scale the 30-foot jail wall and escape to freedom on the other side. With this concentrated burst of punishable productivity, Oscar Campbell earned himself the handles of the Canadian Dillinger and Canada's public enemy number one, putting him in the company of truly rarefied rats. Oscar met back up with Melville, his brother and secret betrayer, in Toronto, and the two joined forces to pull off a bank job together. On July 19, 1937, three masked men entered the Bank of Nova Scotia branch in Richmond, Ontario. They corralled the manager, two tellers, and a customer into the space behind the teller's window and told them to lie down. While two armed bandits covered the hostages, the third rifled the teller's drawers, making a speedy withdrawal of nearly $12,000 in cash. For the Campbell brothers, it was their biggest score yet. The thieves' actions didn't go unnoticed. The bank manager's family lived in the house adjoining the bank, and his wife and two children were alerted by the commotion inside. The manager's wife ran to a store across the street to call the cops. Her 15-year-old daughter, Alex, ran to grab the family's 22 caliber rifle. As the bandits backed out of the bank towards a waiting car, the manager's wife shouted at them, Drop it! You can't get away! We have your number! The thieves answered by firing off warning shots into the air. They hopped into the getaway car and sped off just as young Alex emerged from the house with the loaded rifle in hand. She raised the gun, but by then the car was too far away to get off a good shot. Her mother was right, though. They did have the thieves' number. Ontario license plate number 9V149. At a rented cottage near Manatic, Ontario, on the glittering banks of the Rideau River, a group of nine vacationers retired to the pastoral respite of nature's warm embrace far, far away from the corrupting forces of the city. On July 30th, the tranquility of the setting was broken by police bursting through the door of the secluded hideaway. Inside, they found Oscar Campbell and four others. The cops hauled them off and laid in wait inside the cottage to see if other members of the gang returned to the hideout. Their patience was rewarded when a car driven by Melville Campbell drove up to the cottage. As Melville exited the car, police fired four shots, missing Melville and hitting the car. He jumped back in the ventilated vehicle and sped off. Melville had once again slithered through the grasping hand of the law. At his trial, Oscar was convicted of charges of bank robbery and weapons. 
when the judge laid down a sentence of twelve years' imprisonment, the Dominion Dillinger wept openly in court. Maybe he knew that, upon his release, he would be handed over to Montreal police or extradited to Buffalo to answer for his lengthy list of crimes, distinctly diminishing the likelihood that he would taste freedom for the rest of his natural life. As Oscar was entering Kingston Penitentiary to start out his sentence, he gave a relative on his way back to the outside a message for his brother Melville. Better get in touch with Melville and tell him to give himself up and get it over with, said Oscar. It was his valediction to the free and open air. Exit Oscar Campbell. Melville Campbell continued to be a fugitive well into 1938, at the same time feeding Constable Wilson important underworld dirt. He gave Wilson essential information about the murder of Sergeant Fred Davidson in Sudbury that resulted in the arrest of the cop's killers. But don't think for a second that Melville was a clandestine crusader for justice. His motivations were more financial than ideological. At a secret meeting with Constable Wilson inside Provincial Police Headquarters, surrounded by coppers who were on the hunt for him, Wilson handed Melville the $500 reward for the capture of Davidson's killers. Unbeknownst to Constable Wilson, however, he had given Melville an inch, and Melville would take a mile. Melville's next target was the Royal Bank branch in Mount Bridges, Ontario, near London. On October 13, 1937, two masked men entered the bank and forced the manager to open the vault while the other covered the teller. The men fled the bank with $4,000 in cash and hopped on the running boards of an awaiting getaway car. The bank manager grabbed a revolver, dashed after the hoodlums, and squeezed off three futile shots as the vehicle sped away. Five days later, a squad of 15 provincial and city police officers arrived at an apartment in Windsor, Ontario, their guns at the ready. They unlocked the door and poured into the apartment en masse, rousing Melville from his light slumber. He made an immediate dash for the window, but thought better of it after seeing a battery of service revolvers trained on the window. One of the arresting officers was Alex Wilson, Campbell's one-time benefactor and guardian angel. Campbell pleaded guilty to the Mount Bridges job and was sentenced to nine years in prison. If Campbell was going down, he was determined to take Provincial Constable Alex Wilson down with him. And Melville alleged that he gave reciprocal kickbacks to Wilson. Recall the $500 reward for the tip-off on the Davidson killing? Melville claimed that Wilson demanded a 50-50 cut of it, and that Melville had given it to him, as well as another $350 from the Mount Bridges take. The proclamations of an avowed gangster weren't enough to convict Constable Wilson of any wrongdoing. But he was briefly suspended from active duty, and his reputation was tarnished in the public eye. Melville's reputation as a police stool pigeon suddenly made Kingston Penitentiary an even more inhospitable place than it already was. 
Melville requested, and was granted, a move to Stony Mountain Penitentiary in Manitoba to serve out the rest of his sentence. Exit Melville Campbell Here we slow dissolve to 1949, and the only player left in our pageant of depravity and violence, Joe Bush, still the proprietor of the Plaza Lodge. By then, the dance bands had packed up their instruments and gone home, never to return. The bacchanals of the Roaring Twenties had given way to the squeaky-clean plastic sheen of the post-war period, and the Plaza Lodge's hedonistic revelers were replaced by families stopping for the night on summer road trips. The opening of the Queen Elizabeth Way had diverted traffic away from the Lakeshore Highway, and there were fewer cars passing by the Plaza Lodge. On the dark and stormy night of February 14th, Bill Clark, the lodge's caretaker and porter, smelled smoke coming into his room from the room next door. He went to fetch his boss, Joe Bush, and the two opened the door to the room to find fire engulfing it. They tried to douse the flames themselves, but it was too late. The fire was already out of control. Clark ran out into the hallway of the main house. He banged on doors, rousing the families inside. As parents ushered their bleary-eyed children to safety outside, Clark waited through the mud and rain to alert the residents of the cabins adjacent to the main house. Firefighters from surrounding counties arrived to quell the blaze, but in the end, it was the pouring rain that stamped it out. The inferno devoured the entire main lodge of the house, where pleasure-seekers had once done the Charleston, downed illicit booze, and dipped their toes in the danger-tinged environs of the best little roadhouse in Ontario. Joe Bush, impresario, racketeer, and local celebrity, could only wander through the smoldering husk of the kingdom he'd built, dumbly muttering, It's not insured. It's not insured, to anyone who would listen. The fire wasn't some last-ditch grift for a quick check from the insurance company. Bush, who'd poured everything into the Plaza Lodge, lost everything. The party was well and truly over. Exit Joe Bush. And so we close the file on another tale of murder, scandal, and crime from Mississauga's Darker Side. Like what you heard? Click follow to subscribe. This podcast is written by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Research by Brian Ho and Nicole Mayer. Video content produced by Brian Ho, Nicole Mayer, and Ryan Parks. Mississauga Confidential is a Heritage Mississauga production. Heritage Mississauga is a not-for-profit organization dedicated to researching, recording, and celebrating the history of the city of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Your support helps create programming just like this. For more information about Heritage Mississauga and to become a member, please visit heritagemississauga.com and follow us on YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, dear listener, 
This is Mississauga Confidential, signing off.